Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Howdy and welcome back. I am Steve Abramowitz and this is the Mill Creek View podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Alexander Willis. Welcome to our People in the News, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth and an actual newsmaker. Today, we are talking with Alexander Willis, graduated from the University of North Texas Mayborn School of Journalism, fancy, wrote for the news, formerly the Williamson homepage, for four years under Freeman Web Publishing, Nashville Scene, Nashville Post, freelance journalist who now writes for Alabama Daily News, covering government and politics. Sounds like a promotion. We'll ask him. Y'all may remember the Grant Solomon case. We did a whole show on it with investigative journalist Lauren Conlon from New York and her corruption podcast. Well, Alexander Willis broke the story in 2021 and continued to cover the case over the years. And now he's here to tell us about what he learned about Franklin and any updates and a whole lot more. Hello, Alexander. How are you today? I'm good, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on so so very much. Um, you are now living in Alabama, right? Uh, reporting for Alabama Daily News. How do you like it compared to your time in Tennessee? Well, it's uh, the actual job itself. You know, I'll be frank. It it is more enjoyable. I'm kind of a politics government nerd. Right now, I get to exclusively write on that. Uh, before, you know, everything has its ups and downs. When I was in Tennessee, I, I did some government and politics reporting. That was my forte, what I enjoyed. But, you know, you have a healthy mix of reporting on the new Chick-fil-A or the new gas station down the road, which, you know, you do what you got to do. But uh, they've got their ups and downs. And actually, the topic you're talking about today, that would be one of the pros of you know, my time writing in Tennessee, whereas here, you know, I do zero in on stuff I I absolutely love, government and politics. Back there, while you get a lot of fluff you have to report on, occasionally you get a story like the one we're discussing today involving uh, Grant Solomon, what happened there, uh, the battle that his mother is still fighting today. You get a story like that that you're able to pursue, and before that story you know, it, not even necessarily my story, but before people knew about that, uh, nothing was being done on it. And you, you'd go from two years ago uh, when, you know, folks weren't really talking about that to today. And we, at this point, there are state lawmakers who are helping Angie look into this. And I, I don't want to get ahead of you because you haven't explained to your listeners you know, exactly. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll jump there. deep into that. I want to get a little bit about sure. you first, and then we'll we'll, we'll sure. do 30,000 feet and take it in for landing. Um, sure. But so, to, so, to your question, I, I very right. much enjoy Good. So what are some glaring observations about Alabama that a Tennessean would find different compared to, well, obviously we all know about Roll Tide and we know about UTK, but what, what would some people find from your vantage point, uh, some glaring observations about Alabama? Well, they certainly like country music here, just the same as uh, Tennessee, but, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a con, but there really is no place like Nashville. There's there's not quite the equivalent. You have Birmingham. It's a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, at the while there's a few minute differences, uh, 
a lot of similarities, including a, you know, look at the state of state of the state addresses that Alabama Governor Ivey just gave uh, on Tuesday. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee gave on Monday. Beat for beat, they almost covered the same things. They both talked about AI regulation. They talked about expanding school choice here through ESAs, there through vouchers. But all that to say, far more similarities than differences. I thought so, yeah. So college in North Texas, very different from, say, West Texas. Um, at the time, I was choosing to leave Seattle. My dear friend Scott was two uh, similar age families, and he chose North Texas, and I chose Franklin, Tennessee for all our own reasons. Uh, did you find there are parallels in the people of North Texas and Tennessee when you were here? Oh, sure. Uh, North Texas, I, I grew up primarily in Collin County, which is just north of Dallas. Uh, I would almost... Williamson County and Collin County, Williamson County being right south of Davidson, where Nashville is, very, very similar, similar type of folks, you know, strong Christian, uh, you know, upper middle class folks, a lot of tech jobs, a lot of similarities. Yeah, okay. So from reporters to your newest article as state government and politics reporter for Alabama Daily News, you wrote former Alabama rep John Rogers was indicted Friday on several new charges by a federal grand jury stemming from an investigation last year into what FBI investigators say was a kickback scheme involving state funds. The new charges, which include money laundering, wire and mail fraud, stem from an investigation into the Jefferson County Community Service Fund, a pool of money that was illegally used for bribes and kickbacks. It sounds like you're right back into the thick of it. <laughs> More or less. And, and that that particular story, that's been going on for a few months now. Uh, this Representative John Rogers, and I'll be completely frank, very friendly, very funny individual. And these are just allegations. He's not been uh, found guilty of any of these. I want to make that clear. But uh, I want to say it was you know already three, four months that he was first indicted on a few and they were, they were, uh, I, I forget the word, but they were almost like process charges, like not actual crimes, but interfering in the investigation of a crime. So mm -hmm. I, I think it was, uh, goodness, I can't remember the charge. However, uh, they just brought some new charges against this individual. What they're alleging is there's the, uh, uh, the city of Birmingham was able to levy a new tax. And the purpose of that was to take that money and use it for, community projects, things like putting it into nonprofits, roads, schools, stuff that benefits the community. The delegation from that county, Jefferson County, uh, it's made up of, you know, maybe seven or so members of the state legislature. They are each allocated either a hundred grand a year, or I think it's 200 grand, 200 grand a year. If you're a Senator, you put those in whatever project you want. Allegation was that basically this individual allocated all his money to one organization that happened to be owned by a former lawmaker and that in turn he would receive half of those monies back as a kickback those are the allegations uh certainly you know pretty bombastic allegations we'll see where it goes but as of yesterday he is back in the state house and still got a smile on his face and we'll see where it goes <laughs> That's pretty typical, I guess, these days. All right. So here in Franklin, there are a lot of churches, especially in Williamson County, um, outside of Nashville, like you said, about 25 minutes south. Uh, a lot of wealth here. The best schools, 
Carrie Underwood, Chris Stapleton, Nicole Kidman, and Keith Urban. You can walk down the street and see Reba McIntyre. Okay. Uh, did you find it to be the case when you were here, mega church and mega wealth and fame? <clears throat> did I find it to be the case that it exemplified mega wealth and mega fame, you're saying? It, it sort of uh, exemplified the area. This is what you think of when you think of Williamson oh. County. Uh, mega churches, mega fame. Yes, I, I would say immediately yes. I, I recall, uh, I researched this factoid, but former state Tennessee rep Brandon Ogles, uh, I remember one, I think it was a meeting with business leaders. He noted that in Nashville, there are more churches per you know, 100 miles for every 100-mile radius than anywhere else on earth. Uh, I looked it up, and I, I that does seem to be the case. Uh, so certainly, you know, from lawmakers justifying, you know, this bill or that bill to uh, just about anything you can think of in that county, there's usually a, a religious aspect to it. So, so certainly I found that to be true. The fame, yeah, also as well. I'll say uh, my previous paper— that I wrote for, and uh, this is not to knock them whatever whatsoever. It was a first-time journalism job. Those usually start at around thirty thousand. Uh, suffice to say, though, living in Williamson County, that's not a lot of money. So did a little Ubering on the side on the uh, yeah weekends, whatever. And uh, just from doing that, occasionally I pick up. I remember one night I picked up uh, the bassist for the band Paramore. Uh, you pick up a few celebrities here and there which is funny that they're still using uber but to your question yes to both yes to both all right so may 18th 2021 the news tn.com what it's like to be a homeless in williamson county an initiative born of a coalition of local churches community leaders and nonprofits. the wcha is a nonprofit organization that aims to not only provide shelter for williamson county's homeless population but to combat homelessness in its entirety. You wrote this. Kevin Riggs, a pastor at Franklin Community Church and member of the WCAHA, hopes that through growing the nonprofit, Williamson County could effectively reach what he calls functional zero, establishing a citywide plan so when a person does experience homelessness, it's rare, it's brief, and it's rapidly fixed. That was four years ago. Uh, any indication that that was successful? Unfortunately, I would say probably not. Uh, a lot of what was being called for by some of those faith leaders, Kevin Riggs, by the way, I'll certainly give a shout out to him. He's done a lot of good in the community. Uh, but a lot of what they were calling for, it does take money. Uh, a lot of money depends on in what context you're putting it. If you're putting it in a state budget context, it, it you know, it's pennies. Uh, that said, uh, I'm certainly understanding of the idea of being accountable to every dollar of you know people's tax dollars they want that to go towards i'm sorry a large object just fell outside my window okay. uh oh aliens uh, aliens arriving <laughs> there you go uh to your point uh now unfortunately i i have not seen any movement on that there's always opportunity though every session there's an opportunity to do that to as he described get homelessness to what did he say functional zero where you can never 100 percent eradicate homelessness but there are tools you can institute 
so that when someone finds themselves in that position, there are there's step one, step two, and step three. There are options they can immediately take advantage of to mitigate the suffering and get them back on the right track. It's, this is not a handout we're talking about. It's just basic common sense mechanisms to funnel folks who are struggling onto a path to recovery, which we can still do. And, uh, you know, I'm not that cynical to think that, you know, I don't think anyone could never be convinced that that would be a good option. So I haven't seen progress on that, but I, you know, I'm still hopeful. Yeah. Anywhere from 750 to a thousand homeless individuals residing in the county. Um, so what did you learn about Wilco in doing that article? Um, a lot of those uber rich celebrities I mentioned are churchgoers, right? And so there is a crossover between their money, their church going, their churches, and how Williamson County is functioning as a, uh, a municipality, a place to live. Sure. Uh, probably the most fascinating angle to homelessness, specifically in Williamson County, is, as you said earlier, the, the sheer amount of wealth that exists in that county juxtaposed with the amount of homelessness there. Now, it's, you know, uh, certainly I don't want to exaggerate. Homelessness in Williamson County is it's probably on the lower end. Uh, however, the resources for homeless folks there are basically non-existent. They certainly were four years ago. I haven't seen that much ground gained in that area. There are still churches doing fantastic work, opening their uh, you know, properties to folks during the night on some nights. And, you know, even the uh, the county and city governments, they temperatures get, you know, to a certain point. I'm sure you've seen sometimes they open places up, which certainly better than nothing. Okay. Uh, but yes, as far as homelessness specifically in that county, uh, to me, that was just was what was most interesting, that the uh, yeah. resources just were not there non-existent and exactly four months later the biggest story of your time here in tennessee august 31st 2021 steve Berger resigns from grace chapel elder board following chaotic church service what can you tell us about steve Berger leading up to that resignation who was he and how did he rise to prominence steve Berger, you could you could do a couple hours on mr steve Berger. he uh he founded, I'll get this super brief summary, but he founded Grace Chapel. Uh, and I'm going to be kind of general. I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but he founded Grace Chapel in the early mid 90s in Franklin. Uh, today, it is a very influential, very big, very high attended church. It is our governor's church, or I'm in Alabama now, but Tennessee governor's church. It was it is, no longer, no longer. See, I'm out of date on that. Is that the case? <laughs> but at the time when you were talking about it, yes, it was the place uh, built okay. from nothing into a ma as into a massive mega church. Yep, keep going. Sure, and I'll I'll rephrase the way I say this. As of a couple months ago, it was also said majority leader Jeff Johnson's church. Many prominent people went there. Uh, Steve Berger was very much uh, a draw to that church. He had a charismatic personality, has one today still. Uh, you know, he, he gained a lot of dedicated followers. It was a very, very tight-knit community. Uh, 
you know, I don't know if there's a special sauce to his rise to prominence, but uh, he developed a very dedicated following. It grew and grew. It grew to take on powerful, influential people. And uh, it's been that way ever since. How do you account for his fall? What what did him in? See, I, you say his fall, and from a certain perspective, you could maybe say he's fallen, but at the same time, Time, you know, he's he's still got a, I think it's called API. He's got a cons political consulting kind of firm. He, you know, I would say uh, Pastor Berger is still doing okay. But, if, but uh, you know, to your point, there's at least been a perceptual, you know, criticism in the last couple of years where previously there was basically none. So, sure, certainly some credence to that. And, uh, and he certainly lost his founded church, if not far sure, from from sure. the universe, or had to you know run out of town on a rail. He's no longer the main pastor with his sure. wife of Grace uh, Chapel here in Leapers Fork. Sure, and, and yes, uh, and really, it where I saw it start obviously is he did what a lot of pastors here in the United States do, and I'm. I'm not going to condemn one politician or another, at least in this context, but, uh, you know, the last several years, there have been pastors that just sort of regurgitate some of the maybe harder right rhetoric. And I don't even know if I would call it harder right, but more the the community that, that focuses on what they would describe as woke. I'm not going to try to describe woke, but... Uh, you know, cancel culture, things of that nature. And there, there are a decent amount of moderate uh, conservatives in Williamson County that that just sort of leaves a bad taste in their mouth. And I, I think Berger just went harder and harder along a certain path. That already created some division within the church, uh, of course. And I, I won't go into too much detail until you want to expand on it, but uh, with some of the allegations involving the church, uh, with Grant Solomon allegedly speaking to Pastor Berger uh, about some abuse, which, you know, under Tennessee law, he would have been obligated to report. That was not done. Berger says he was not told that, to be clear. But that was the crux of the allegation. There were other allegations that arose uh, some not even related to Grant Solomon or the Solomon family whatsoever. Uh, those allegations being some very cultish behavior uh, in the church, not all of its members. I've met many of its members, and I've met incredible, fantastic individuals. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to cast any one group as this or that, but... Uh, well, you, you know, you mentioned, sorry to interrupt you, but you mentioned... The, the obligation and the mandatory nature of having to report, he's a pastor, so obviously there's a little bit of the, you know, um, the secrecy there or the privacy there, but the administrators as well underneath him who ran the, sh the school were obligated as well and didn't do it. So Correct. Ang Anglican Watch had this to say. Um, pretty eloquently, actually. The reason why offenders get away with what they do is because we have too many cultures of silence. When something does surface, all too often the church leadership quiets it down because they're concerned about reputation. 
Do you think gray school, like maybe Covenant Presbyterian, where the trans gal that hated white Christians we saw in her manifesto, um, uh, were, you know, when she was doing that, were protecting their reputation more than him or the school itself? Oh, I'm sorry, more than the kids. Oh, from my opinion, yes, 10,000%. You, uh, he built up something very huge uh, from almost nothing you know, allegations of cultish behavior or, you know, God forbid, being aware of child abuse and basically telling the child to stop talking about it, that is a massive threat to everything you've built up. So do I do I think that perhaps he was more concerned with his own uh, image in the community and, and uh, his status versus the well-being of children? Uh, I don't think it'd be a stress day in my opinion uh yes i think that is very much the case yeah especially when we're talking about potentially allegedly murder but we'll get there in a second um sure. a photo a photo went along with that article um and the caption reads pastor steve Berger center sits with governor bill lee left his wife sarah right obviously very close with the family and former secretary of state mike pompeo not pictured at an August 7th Williamson County Republican Party event. Why did you mention, mention former CIA chief Mike Pompeo if he's not even in the picture? Sure, I've been asked that before and uh, really it's Steve Berger, you know, there, you, you mentioned that he's stepping down as founding pastor. There's so much context that goes into that. And part of that context is how, uh, you know, important this individual, how influential, uh, how, you know, powerful people he has been able to uh, surround himself with. That's an important context to him stepping down from, you know, this massive empire that he's built. So uh, former CIA director Mike Pompeo, he was not in that particular picture, but, you know, why did I include it? It gives readers the context that, you know, Steve Berger is not a, a random pastor. He is a very, very important pastor. He sits at the big boy table at events like those. This is who's next to him. Yeah, that's exactly the way I wanted to frame it. All right. So Lauren's show is called Corruption. She's been on here, so everyone can go back and listen if they want to know all about that. But uh, what happened to Grant Solomon? Corruption. What happened to Grant Solomon? What do you think happened to him? It's hard for me to affirmatively 100% say this thing or the other. I'll, I'll say this definitively. I think, that for those that don't know, Grant, uh, he died in 2020 in a very, what was reported to be a vehicle accident. Uh, what do I think happened? I think what the official story is, at least as far as what is outlined in that police report, I think that that is not accurate and that he certainly did die uh he died by other means than what was reported was it as is alleged uh his father that caused his death you know i i i've seen the inconsistencies in the existing stories i i can just definitively say i, I certainly do not believe uh, what has been reported or at least uh, documented by police at this point.
And uh, I also believe that, at least given the context, there is great reason to suspect uh, Aaron would have a motive to do something like that. Yeah, I think you, Lauren, as journalists and I and many parents can agree it needs investigation. I mean, the outrage really is the absence of evidence leading to speculation. Like you said, you can't definitively say, well, why can't we? Why wasn't there an investigation? And that's where it gets really, really dirty is where you say, where were the Gallatin police? Where were all the other people to protect this, these kids and this mother? And it's hard to understand how the mom and sister, if under so much fear and so much documentation leading up to it, cannot be protected. You know, Gracie left Grace School. I know that. But they're still they still live in town. Are we to just to assume it's over and forget about it? Sure. It, it, I will say the biggest uh, problem I think most people have, certainly me, with the way this was handled is, I'm not going to go into the whole backstory, but... Aaron and Angie, uh, who were married, they're the mother and father of Grant Solomon. They had seven years, seven years worth at this point of Grant's death of divorce battles, allegations against each other, like, you know, a, a lot of butting of heads that is well documented in multiple police reports. The two children, Grant and Gracie, were forensically interviewed by police during those interviews. This is prior to Grant's death, obviously. Uh, during those interviews, both Grant and Gracie affirmed some of the allegations that Angie was making, both to the church, to police. Grant's, uh, or excuse me, Aaron's testimony to police that is included in the police report. It says things like uh, uh, Grant pulled up Aaron was was waiting at the the scene of the incident. He was waiting there. Uh, Aaron tells police that his son pulled up next to him, yet he had told his wife that he was following his son the whole time. So you have you have almost a decade's worth of family conflict, specifically between the mother and the father. You have police interviewing the children, uh, affirming some of the allegations. You have all these things that when there's a very strange death, like what happened, very odd. I, I you know, challenge you to find me another death that happened in this manner. Uh, you're telling me that police are going to talk to the father for a few minutes, clean up the crime scene, call it a day, and just that's it. There, there's, there's no more investigating to be done. And they didn't clean the crime scene. They, they left three very important pieces of evidence laying there for somebody to randomly find, which has happened to be a friend of the accused, or let's just say the father, right? He is that. We don't know about accused. Yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy. It's almost like uh, uh, Keystone Cops. Um, we talked about Pastor Berger's powerful connections and fame and money. I didn't see Aaron Solomon, the father, making a lot of money as a sportscaster, 55K top. So I don't understand why even after Berger lost the church, if they were the well-connected protectors of his secrets, that he could have that much juice to get away with it. I mean, he was still invited onto campus with accusations of that child rape, even announcing their baseball games. He wasn't that, he wasn't Carrie Underwood. He wasn't that powerful of a dude. How, how, did, how do you think this was all 
Why would they circle the wagons around him and risk so much reputation? Because one day, if the federal government does decide to investigate, they're all going to have to answer for this. Now, you know, to, to that question, most of my answer would be speculation. I'll, I'll say that you prove loyal to Berger, and this is what I've heard from countless members, former members of the church. You prove loyal to the church. You show that you'll put your neck out there. Uh, that those were the general accusations. You're you're good. You know, you're you're a loyal member of that church. You get that protection. Uh, to what extent? I, I would hope not that it would involve if if you are you know abusing a child or or worse as is suspected uh that those protections would not still exist but the only information i i could make a a guess as to why that is is that you know he he did well by church leadership therefore he was uh you know he was one of their own and he would be protected Wow, that's not very Christian. That's more like a cult. Um, and it's crazy that he drove Grant's truck around for months after his death when it was supposedly, uh, the story was that it jumped out of gear, that he did it, and they found it at a salvage yard, and the black box proved that it didn't actually do that. You know, And they had to do that pri privately. That wasn't like the police discovered this or a detective. Um, yep. It's really hard not to make the case an investigation is warranted. Have you heard from anybody or done anything or know anything that's working towards trying to get an investigation? I mean, obviously, the, the the crime scene is pretty cold by now, but the facts are the facts. There's a boy dead in a grave somewhere. Sure. Uh, right now, the voices pushing hardest for just any kind of investigation. I don't want to say a new investigation because there really never was one. Continues to still be Angie her close friends, uh, a few other individuals. That said, uh, they have had some success in getting the story spread around. And that's really right now all that, uh, you know, anyone interested in helping can do is just spread this so that people know, because I, once people hear it, it, it does sound insane, like you said. As far as anything else, uh, this was in... 2022, but, uh, and you may have planned to touch on this, but the Tennessee AG, uh, this had gotten up to him at one point, supposedly. We did a public records request to some of his communications prior to his, uh, his, uh, you know, being attorney general. This was when he was chief counsel for Governor Lee. And uh, he did reference this case as a homicide investigation. And after being asked, uh, you know, by Angie and others that, that went up as, as high as it could go, uh, you know, he was forced to basically send a, you know, communicate with Governor Lee, you know, an update on this situation. But in that email, he called it a homicide investigation. This is just one little nugget of, of just one more thing that raises so many questions. Uh, however, at this point, it is still Angie, her close friends, and uh, any supporters that are pushing for more eyeballs on this. Yeah, and it's hard to understand, too. I mean, Angie was a parent at the school, like many others. Gracie and Grant were students there, so there's three. 
and he was a pro caliber athlete that would obviously could have gone on to big things and been a, a celebrity, not a celebrity, but a popular, a successful alumni. Yet they chose him and not her to help. I mean, that is it like because she's the woman and he's the man, or I mean, just maybe she wasn't as close to the fire as as we talked about earlier. You don't have to get speculate. I mean, no one will ever know. But sure, uh, sure. There, there is a new parents petition asking the feds to look into the Gallatin police. Um, uh, just, you know, can't say name mishandling of it because they didn't really handle it at all, uh, all the way up to courts. Do, do you think they'll have an effect? I think anything and everything will have an effect. Uh, the more phone calls, you know, it's hard to put a single number. Like if, if they get over X amount of phone calls, that will be the linchpin that launches a new investigation. But I would say literally everything that reminds people of what has happened here helps. Do I think that will be the kicker? You know, I, I can't say for sure. I would say probably not even, yeah. but it would certainly help. Speaking of the kicker, needle. Nancy Grace, her show is supposed to pick it up to give it national awareness, but I haven't seen it. So I wonder if maybe the network doesn't want to touch it maybe, or some Tennessee national thing, you know, do you know anything about that and, and why that's been delayed so long? I, I do not know why it's been delayed. I imagine at least the latest I heard is they still plan to air that. Can't confirm that. They did record the show though. It uh, is recorded. It has been recorded. They, they talked to Angie. They, they talked to her attorney. Uh, it was a good discussion. Where it's at right now, I, I couldn't tell you. But as far as I know, it's still uh, they still intend to release that at some point. They talked to you? Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, so trial trafficking, another subject, is a huge issue in Tennessee. All 95 counties, hopefully not as bad in Alabama, but probably, sadly, it is. We had a, a longtime youth soccer coach leave his cell phone at a restaurant and got caught with all his bad deeds uh, with kids on it. Um, we've had at least two youth pastors, one at the Catholic Church in Franklin, get busted. Um, I said earlier there are a lot of churches here. You wouldn't think this would be so prevalent, would you? Sure. It, unfortunately, you, you see stories like that everywhere, certainly in Tennessee, certainly here. It's not good. No, it's not good. And the church is supposed to be a safe space. Um, Tennessee has one of the highest overall rates of kids homicides in the nation, uh, but ranks even higher for the rate of kids killed by guns. One out of every four children who died in 2021 was killed by a bullet. Uh, this is interesting. New data released uh, by the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth provides a comprehensive portrait of the lives and deaths of Tennessee's children and the economic and social forces that shape their childhoods from poverty to educational achievement, access to health care and housing. While child deaths by firearms are on the rise, Tennessee ranks seventh in the nation for children murdered by guns. Now, they said murdered. Youth in Tennessee are much more likely to be the victim of a firearm crime than to perpetrate one. The State of the Child in Tennessee 2023 report notes, in 2022, kids were perpetrators of 1,561 crimes involving firearms. They were victims in 4,490 firearms-related crimes, according to the report. Texas, Alabama, and Tennessee, everywhere you've been, we all have this problem. Is it the gun or the parents making them available or something else? Suicide, by the way, it was not mentioned in that Tennessee Lookout report. Is it the guns? As far as your question, uh, I am not. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is 
we have a lot of churches. We have a lot of kids doing this self-harm to themselves and others. We have the story of, of the Solomons and that, that, that mega church. Could it be something else besides just, you know, Wild West gun violence? Are we talking about some mental health issues that are being uh, perpetrated here by some of these things we're talking about in their little communities that they grow up in? Sure. Well, I, I think you almost said the answer basically right there. Uh, I'm not opposed to just normal common sense gun regulation, like basic red flag laws. If it, evidence is brought to a judge that is pretty clear someone's an immediate threat to themselves or others uh, who temporarily take that gun, I think that's reasonable. Is it a slippery slope? You know, th that's a separate debate. Is it the guns though that are that are causing this increase in in gun violence? You know, I, I do say, as you said, mental health is a is a huge issue that is just untreated. And I'll say what's perhaps most frustrating is every time when there's a new mass shooting, a horrible tragedy, and we have the same debate again. Uh, you usually have two camps. You have one camp that says uh, guns are the issue. We we must enact laws. Usually the laws they propose are largely toothless and wouldn't have even stopped the the most recent tragedy. And then the other side says mental health, which I think would be a great start. However, that side uh, responds by then cutting uh, mental health resources. We, we had we had hundreds of thousands of people at state and federally funded mental health institutions, I want to say in the late 40s, early 50s, hundreds of thousands. By 2016, that number was something like 60 to 70,000 and dropping drastically. Today, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it is far less. Now, there are a bunch of problems with uh, state and federal uh, mental health facilities. A lot of it's you, sure. Uh, but we've learned a lot since then. There's a lot more we could do for mental health. There's a lot more we could do to alleviate suffering, suffering and poverty and all sorts of things that uh, almost every one of these shooters, with the right resources available, I would be willing to bet you quite a bit uh, that they might have taken another path uh, should help have been available and the resources been available. So, sure, there's many things you can point to. Uh, I would love to see more resources uh, for those that are left behind because that number of people being left behind is growing every single day. And uh, we're having fights about, you know, Dr. Seuss and books and school libraries and all sorts of uh, other wild things. Yeah, I can't just, I can't help but think of the parallels between an Audrey Hale at Covenant and becoming a shooter and transgender. And then of course, Gracie and who she became and could have become exactly. And then they never let us know the pharmaceutical reports, pharmaceutical reports of the killer. And this is a huge healthcare employer place in middle Tennessee. People don't know that. Um, next thing, the, the debate over charter schools in Tennessee exploded last year after Lee announced a public private partnership with the private Christian school, Hillsdale College. Sexton, McNally, Jack Johnson from this district are all in on school vouchers right now, today. You wrote for the Tennessee Lookout uh, last year. Uh, I guess you 
gave it to him because you were, weren't living here. January, exactly a year ago. Tennessee House Speaker lays out legislative priorities in Nashville speech, choice roads, corporate tax cuts, and charter schools top Sexton's list. Clemens, who's the Democratic uh, leader, said state Democrats plan to introduce a number of bills to halt or amend TISA, but with a strong Republican majority across state, the state House and Senate, these upcoming political disputes will likely be an uphill battle for Democrats. They say the vouchers will be used for Lee's rich friends that have kids in private schools, mostly here in Williamson County. Do you think Clemens is right or Sexton is and it'll help poor kids? Uh Yes, I, I think it will not really help poor kids. There is a great, and I'll summarize it very quickly, there's a great debate in Texas going on right now where they are attempting to introduce similar school voucher programs. And uh, one of the lawmakers who was opposed to said programs made a very compelling argument. And that was, here is data from all states that have imposed similar school voucher programs. Do you want to know the percentage of the recipients of either these ESA, education savings account, payouts or school vouchers. It is, and he went state by state, generally the figures were anywhere from 75 to 89% of the recipients of school vouchers were to parents of students who are already in private schools. Now, you know, I, I don't think anyone's opposed to public school alternatives existing, uh, anyone should be able to send their kid wherever they want. Fantastic. Uh, what I think people might have a problem with is based on those numbers I just cited, 75 to almost 90% of school vouchers going to parents of kids already in private schools, parents who can already afford, you know, whatever it is, five to 15,000 a year tuition basically getting a coupon at the expense of public schools. I'm there, there's school choice. And, and then uh, there's, there's that. And I, I just think most people would probably have an issue with that, with that information. They do sell it as a tool to help children, particularly children in lower income families to escape in underfunded school. But you know, when you think about that for more than 10 seconds, I imagine that's not going to be every student at that school. So are you, you know, silently condemning the rest of the children to it, to an awful school? Surely, I think there's a, a better solution. Uh, but that is my opinion. There, there are certainly plenty of pro school vouchers, pro ESA folks out there. You know, they've right. got their case. I've got mine. All right. Uh, it's a debate that's happening as we speak. Uh, Voices for Alabama's Children releases 2024 policy agenda. You wrote this January 15th, 2024, so hot off the presses. Another of Voices' primary policy goals for the new year was for lawmakers to continue to increase mental health resources for children, some that members of the state school safety advisory commission identified as being among the largest gaps in school safety. Lawmakers have made some progress in this realm, placing more than 240 individuals in Alabama's public schools that are fully trained to provide mental health first aid for students. Quote, our policy agenda is bold because we prioritize giving all children and families every opportunity to thrive. And these priorities, we believe, will have the most impact on improving outcomes for the state's children, Hartsfield said. 
Okay. What are you working on back home? And uh, do you think the mental health professionals inside the schools is the solution if uh, armed SROs are not? I wouldn't say the solution. I, I would say certainly a, a help, any resource to, uh, if there's a struggling kid, if that could help even a handful of them, a good thing, uh, not the, the full solution. Sure. And, and you said, if so, why would that be the solution and not armed RSOs? That's what's happening here. That's what they're trying here. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, armed SROs, you know, certainly okay with that as well. It, I don't think it's an either or situation with that. I think we have a lot of work to do to, uh, you know, help young people. But uh, as far as folks helping, you know, counselors and such like that, certainly, certainly wouldn't hurt. Uh, but neither am I opposed to SROs in the schools. Okay. All right. Alexander, thank you very much for your time. Tell us um, what you're working on and where people can go and find out more about you and maybe follow you on social. Sure. Uh, so what I'm working on right now, Alabama legislature, they just started this uh, week with the new 2024 session. A lot of uh, bills that are getting a lot of, uh, you know, folks we're talking about. There's an absentee ballot bill. There's uh, gambling possibly going to come this year. So anyway, uh, that sort of stuff, that'll take up my whole year. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me at reporter at reporter Willis. Uh, that handle, you can basically find me on YouTube, everywhere else uh, that you can think of. So I appreciate you for having me on, Stephen, and thank you very much. All right. Well, keep keep reporting, and we will uh, hope to have you on again sometime. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tyler. I'm Lee Greenwood, and this is Mill Creek View Podcast, and we're here at John Rich's house. I don't understand how you ever did without me. I don't understand how I bring you down to your knees. And welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show. Producer Steve, what do you think of our guest, Alexander Willis? Oh, um, nice information, Steve. Nice information. I'm going to pull myself up here and don't report. I see you. I see you. And um, just uh, uh, you're going back to the incident with the uh, death of the of the young man, the Grant, athlete yeah. Grant. And so you, you've brought up a couple points. And, and I think maybe let me ask you this. Tennessee. All-American, conservative, all these churches, all this wealth in certain segments, other areas like Memphis, not so much, outlying areas, not so much, but a church at every corner. I've been through parts of Tennessee. I've been through lots of the South, church at every, every corner. corner. More, more than Starbucks. More yeah. than, yes. But there's this dichotomy of high rates of children being killed with firearms. Now, you didn't tell me the statistics of where those deaths were. Was that in a Memphis area? Was that in Nashville? Was it just in the rural? Or is it they just say in the state? The numbers I threw out state, that's statewide. Did they, can you find if it's a certain 
region within the state? Not within the confines of this show, but yes, I could definitely find that. But I think what you're trying to say is, if all these people are going to church, why are we getting such bad outcomes? There's a disconnect between going to church and really being a follower of Jesus. And we're seeing all these other shenanigans that sometimes the church is a place of building power, not necessarily a better walk in a closer walk with the Lord. Am I kind of touching on a little bit of what you're angling I mean, I at? can't be definitive. I haven't written the uh, anthology of this yet, but there is a problem. You would think most, the most churches, the least crime, the least punishment of children, the least among, you know, the least amongst us, the millstones around our necks, but yet it is human. This is the world. These it are is. sinners. These are failed people all the way at the top. Um, and we just see it more often because I think there are more of them, to be honest with you. I think there were seven churches that are light posts and the rest of them are, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta read the Bible, be in the word and not necessarily fall in love with that pastor or that, that administrator or that principal at the Christian school, because they are humans and they're going to fail you every time. Isn't there Um, a song called, uh, cult of personality you know that song that's a great rock song but that's the whole idea that's more about politicians but yes exactly same thing we're all we're all sinners and unfortunately sometimes we do sin and then of course there's justice and if you're going to have a a a suspicious circumstances around an athlete dying in a in a car accident we need to know it was an accident and if somebody did something wrong there should be some justice before they beat their maker and if they say they're christian they know what's coming. I know. All right, let's get into this. Poison spiders at the center of the web. The same people accusing Trump voters of subverting democracy are the ones who cheated in every election since the 1960s, lied to get us into half a dozen stupid wars, create COVID in a lab, and then covered that up. You are free to tell them to STFU. Peachy Keenan by James Howard Kunstler. K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R. Sorry if I mutilated that. I keep doing that. You know why the judge let provocateur Ray Epps off the hook for his antics before and during the so-called J6 insurrection, don't you? Well, yes, it was partly because he was acting at the discretion of blob officials, most likely the FBI, but simply the CIA, possibly defense intelligence or some black box fed outfit no one ever heard of, but somehow gets half a billion in funding every year. Old Ray pleaded to one year's probation, no jail time, 100 hours of community service, checking books out at his local library, and a $500 fine. Say what? A speeding ticket on the Rockville Pike would probably cost you more. You remember those videos of Ray on the D.C. streets the day before the riot, imploring the crowds and commandeering with his military bearing a red hat six inches taller than most of the other men around him yelling, tomorrow we need to go into the Capitol, into the Capitol, at which moment the crowd groaned, no, and then commencing chanting, fed, 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 they had his number. His use of the word need was especially beguiling, as in who actually needed that to happen. I'll tell you one reason Ray didn't didn't get like 20 years or two years of pretrial detention in the reeking roach-infested D.C. lockup or massive fines like other J6 defendants because he told his handlers in no uncertain terms that he would blow their cover and vivisect them publicly on the whole Fed J6 operation if they so much as made him show up in person for any proceeding. And of course, he attended his sentencing by phone in a Zoom meeting from a remote location. (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you the actual reason that Ray Epps got the VIP powder puff treatment. This is the article. 
it was to give half of America a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. The old double-barreled middle finger, a thunderous F.U., with the subtext, we can do anything we want to you, and you can't do anything yes. about it, and we can rub your faces in it to hoo-hoo. And then empty a bedpan over your head in case you're not feeling sufficiently impotent and humiliated. And the purpose of all that is their hope to foment some act of genuine violent resistance against the blob to justify further lawless prosecution of the blob's enemies. They're really hoping to set off a civil war to justify martial law in order to ensure a free and fair election. Yikes. There's more of that for your Google reading pleasure. Check it out. Um, how pro-Hamas rhetoric infected U.S. high school by Gary Newman, New York Post. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Adolf Hitler, 1935. We are witness today to anti-Israel, anti-Semitic protests on college campuses, sometimes violent, always repulsive. Their rants are passionate, intense, and filled with hate and misinformation. Questions are being asked. How did we get to this point? Did it start in college? Shockingly, the answer is no. The indoctrination begins far earlier in high schools. As a parent, are you aware of what your child is being taught? Have you read their textbooks or attended a school board meeting? Most have not. I certainly did not. This is why so many families would be surprised to learn that our high schools have become centers of pro-Islamist indoctrination masquerading as education. That is not just an observation. In, it's personal and dates back to August 2005. Hurricane Katrina had devastated New Orleans. Condoleezza Rice was named the first African-American Secretary of State. Tiger won his fourth Masters. The White Sox scored their first World Series in 88 years. This was also the period when Israel was uprooted its citizens from Gaza after nearly 30 years of rule. Amid the pullout, I had a chance conversation with my daughter, then already an adult and certainly well-educated. She was concentrating on her career and had never shown much interest in current <clears throat> events or public or politics or Israel. But suddenly she got my attention. You know, Dad, there would be peace in the Middle East if the Israelis would give the Palestinians back their land. I could not believe what I was hearing and could hardly breathe. After we hung up, I began to ask myself, how could she, a college graduate, believe such nonsense, and how had she come to think this way in the first place? How and where had she learned to blame Israel for every crisis in the Middle East? And so I decided to find out, and what I discovered was shocking and outrageous. While we all know that pro-Arab, anti-Jewish sentiments are rife across college campuses, the problem is just as dire in America's elementary and high schools. Across the nation, hate is being taught in American schools by American teachers using American textbooks. It is, a it is pervasive. It is intentional. It has been going on for decades. As far back as 2008, the American Textbook Council was reporting textbook editors adjust the definition of jihad and sharia or remove those words from lessons to avoid inconvenient truths Explicit facts that non-Muslims might find disturbing are varnished or deleted. Terrorism and Islam are uncoupled and the ultimate danger of Islamic militancy hidden from view. Almost a decade ago, I was able to secure an audience with the local school board in South Florida. They were about to purchase new world history textbooks. I'll read y'all one example. There are several, but if you want to find out what I'm talking about, you got to jump over to Rumble because all of you wonderful TECN.TV viewers who like to see me live, I ran out of time. So come on over to iPod or iTunes or Rumble and hear the rest of it, and uh, we'll see you next week. But uh, the rest of you, stick around, and uh, I think I got some interesting things to tell you. Okay.
Steve, can I keep going? Yes, you can. All right. One example. Read them, and and, and they were horrible. Uh, a verbatim pro-Muslim primer. I pointed out factual errors as well as content whose only purpose was to indoctrinate. The board listened and chose to purchase alternative books that were more accurate and suitable. Phew. But this is the exception, not the rule. Indeed, the examples of textbooks being used in classroom nationwide promoting anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic tropes remain innumerable. World history, patterns of interaction, McDougall, Little, and a division of Houghton Mifflin Company, 2009, page 1019. While the United Nations granted the Palestinians their own homeland, the Israelis seized most of that land, including the West Bank and Gaza, during its various wars. This is false. In 1948, the United Nations partitioned Palestine according to UN Resolution 181 between Arabs and Jews. You get the idea. Back to the article. My journey has lasted 18 years. I have learned a lot. Our youth is under attack. The battleground, the classroom, and the computer. And it's an election. Okay, so Steve, what do you think? Am I wrong? Is he wrong? I don't know. I don't, who's who's the uh, individual who's the uh, writing the article? I don't. This is just a dad, and his name is um, Gary Newman, and he wrote it in the New York Post, How Pro-Hamas Rhetoric Infected U.S. High Schools, and he went back an awful long way to tell us, it's and not then the, he cited the books. Not the Gary Newman that I think it's uh, blinded me by science, but um, hold on here. No, 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 not a famous singer, no. Okay. Well, I, I, I do know that I'm I'm kind of a, a in-between, so you don't want to ask me, Steve. But I don't want to be pro-Hamas. I don't want to be pro-Israel genocide. I don't want to be pro-anything. You and I have talked about this before. I hate yeah, war. I either. I want to be pro-accurate history books. And yeah, me too. What that's what I want to be. talking about inaccurate history books. And we've been talking about that for about a year. Oh, that, that's how they, all that's history how they books have been totally tampered with. You and I have talked about that, what, for over a year on the show. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised they're trying to bend something towards a certain agenda. So I agree with you on that. All right. And speaking of that, next article, DEI goes quiet. It is an election year after all. As corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion programs come under attack, some companies are rebranding their efforts. This in the New York Times of all places, broken clock is right twice a day type of thing. That raises a question. How companies pulled back on DEI, have they or have they just changed how they approach and talk about it? DEI is operating in a new environment. Last year, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, setting off a wave of similar lawsuits and legal threats against company diversity programs. And while polling indicates that most Americans believe it's good for companies to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's a wide partisan divide. In a Pew survey last year, 78% of workers who identified as Democrats agreed with this sentiment, while just 30% of Republicans workers thought the same. The pushback may have prompted a rebranding, according to DEI professionals. At some companies, what used to be called a DEI survey may now be advertised as a cultural survey, Emerson <laughs> said. Or management training, once framed as part of DEI efforts, may instead be discussed as a course to help managers deliver performance reviews more effectively. This term seems to be pretty widely misunderstood in ways that I don't think any of us realize until the past couple of months, Emerson said of DEI. She added that it might make sense for companies to, quote, be far more specific about exactly what it is that we're talking about. Some corporate DEI programs now include a broader variety of groups, said Porter Braswell, the founder of 
2045 Studio, a membership network for professionals of color. I think instead of saying this is a program for Black employees, he said it would be more like this is a program to increase the equity of promotion rates across the firm. And everybody is included to apply to be part of this program, but will play different roles. Some companies now talk about IED instead of DEI. What's IED? The emphasis is it the same inclusion, thing? Inclusion, as... equity, diversion. <laughs> same uh, thing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, placing the emphasis on inclusion. Okay, there you go. Um, I'm going to save this for next week because it's too good to rush through. So, time for my quotes of the day. Hold on. But, okay. There you go. Time for my quotes of the day. Before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Milk Review Podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, and now you see why. Because if you're on TECN and I keep going, you got to get all this information. Uh, so subscribe and check us out at, at Mill Creek View on Twitter. Childhood is the small town everyone came from. Garrison Keeler. For any American who had the great and priceless privilege of being raised in a small town, there always remains with him nostalgic memories. Dwight D. Eisenhower. In the small town of Hannibal, Missouri, when I was a boy, everybody was poor, but didn't know it. And everybody was comfortable and did know it. Mark Twain. I was from a small town and nobody really expected you to leave, especially before you graduate. Taylor Swift, born 1989, West Reading, Pennsylvania, population 4,165 in 1990. That's pretty small. Fame is only good for one thing. They will cash your check in a small town. Truman Capote. His nonfiction novel, first published in 1966 in Cold Blood, detailed the 1959 murders of four members of the Clutter family in the small farming community of Holcomb, Kansas. Capote learned of the quadruple murder before the killers were captured, and he traveled to Kansas to write about the crime. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Alexander Willis, for giving us the who, what, where, when, why, and how like it's supposed to be done. Not that I think... Not how I think or just opinion. It's okay to have one, but not when you're reporting the news. Hey, producer Steve, do you know where the word N-E-W-S news comes from? N-E-W-S news? No, I do not. Northeast, west, south. Oh, I like that. That's goodbye for now. I'm your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. See you all next week. Peace in our time and glory to God.
Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.